Turn in your Bibles to the book of James. I don't know if you remember, but three weeks ago tonight, we started a new series on Wednesday night called Authentic. And um, then we had some other things. We had our visitors from Africa last week and I think something else the week, uh, the week before that. So I can't really remember all that we've done on Wednesday night. But, um, but here we are back in the book of James. You know, some people call this book the gospel of works. The gospel of works. Um, some people don't think the book of James should even be in the canon of Scripture, meaning they don't think it should be in the Bible at all. Uh, in fact, Martin Luther, when he read it, after a revelation of, of grace, he called it an epistle of straw. He didn't think it should be in the Bible either. He said that there's far too much about what we need to do for God and not near enough about what God in Christ has already done for us. Over time, he did change his opinion. And I believe he did the right thing because like I told you last week, I believe that, um, that there's no contradiction. I don't believe there's a, a challenge from James. I don't, some people say, well, you know, James didn't have a revelation of grace and so that's why he's coming off half-cocked with all this work stuff. Um, but I believe that all Scripture, like I said last week or three weeks ago, was inspired by God. And I believe the Holy Spirit wrote it, not James. And there are books written by some of the early church fathers and even the first century apostles that did not make this, the canon of Scriptures. And that's okay. There's some of those books that didn't deserve to be in there. Uh, and I, I don't know if you understand that terminology or not, but the canon was just a group of smart people theologically, I suppose, got together and decided what should go in the Bible and what shouldn't. And they had a list of criteria. And some books written by some of the, the, the people in the Bible didn't make it, and James did. And I believe it should have. And I believe because of that, then we have to take a critical look at it and really you know, realize that God's trying to speak something into us. In other words, there's a spiritual side of things, and then there's a practical side. And so James really does focus in on that practical side. But if we aren't careful, we'll come away from studying the book of James as a Pharisee or a legalist if you weren't already. <laughs> Most of us have a little robed Pharisee hiding out somewhere in our mind, don't we? that likes to pop out once in a while and agree with some crazy stuff. And so uh, he, he'll, he'll pop out once in a while or she'll pop out once in a while through this study and then we'll just smack them back down into their place. <laughs> the second option, of course, is to, to come out of this study being a grace-inspired lover of Jesus like never before. And I think that's, that's what we're getting to in all of this, you know, and, and how many times have we talked right here in this room about the fact that, that salvation comes not because of what we do, but what Jesus did for us, and so having faith in him settles it forever, and we realize that, so if that's the case, then we must ask a few questions, for instance, does God care what we do? Does he care about our obedience or our works? Does he care? Does it matter? Um... And those are, you know, valid questions in light of the way he writes his, his letter. And I believe that as we go through it, we're going to see very conclusively that it does matter what we do. Our, our actions matter, uh, just not in the way that maybe we thought they did before. They don't matter as, as far as salvation goes, 
But how many of you know you can go to heaven and ruin every relationship in your life? You can go to heaven and be on your way to glory and, and turn everybody else off on Jesus. Uh, how many of you know we've met a few of those people? So the whole idea here is to recognize that, that when we walk in the Spirit of God, that it's not our action and our works that direct the, the love of God. It is the love of God that directs our actions. And so we become a reflector of God's favor, not, not what we do then drawing God's favor. See what I mean? Uh, and that's a very simple thing, but it's very fundamental and very profound as well because that's where we normally would just get hung up. We feel like God's not going to move. I, I made this statement the other day uh, on Sunday that I heard somebody say that God doesn't bless medioc mediocrity. He blesses excellence. Well, he blesses both. There's a blessing when you decide to just do things excellent from a character, from an integrity standpoint, right? There's a blessing in that. That's wonderful when people know that when you tell them something, that means something. And that, I believe that does represent the father quite well. Uh, I believe that represents the earthly parents quite well. I used to tell my sons, you better remember who you belong to today when you go to school. Uh, don't make me come down here. You know, the way I grew up and the way they grew up is when you get in trouble at school or with the cops, uh, I side with the school or the cops. <laughs> That's how I was raised. You go home and, and somebody tells on you, when I was a kid, you were just flat automatically wrong. And I was beaten as a child. And I have a psychological disorder and I grew up with it. It's called... <laughs> It's called respect for others. <laughs> but that's another sermon for another day, right? So let's go. Now, we remember uh, three weeks ago, I know it's a long, long time back there, but we did cover the first seven verses. So I'm just going to kind of... The Lord's calling me back to a couple of these things, and then we'll jump ahead, and we're going we're gonna to get all the way to verse 18 tonight, if you can imagine that. But in James 1, verse 1, it says... James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Because that word greetings is in there, um, we just sort of read past this. We tend to, just as people, as humans, read past verses like this, because really for us, once we read that, we're just thinking that it means nothing more than, hey, what's up? Right? Hey, how's it going? Um, and that's not what it means. Matter of fact, what we find in that verse right there, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, uh, of God and of Jesus Christ, um, that really becomes the foundation of the entire book. What he's establishing before he gets into any of the practicality of walking with Jesus as he establishes how he is saved and how he lives his life and where he sees and understands his blessing come from. He is a voluntary servant of the living God and Christ Jesus our Lord and that sums up the gospel. So he locates himself. Remember how I've said to you before, it's easy to locate somebody spiritually if you just listen to what they say? You don't have to say anything. If you just hear people talk for a few minutes, you'll be able to locate where they're at. 
and, uh, and, and James locates himself here, much like uh, Paul had done in all 13 of the books that he wrote. And we see the, thing, the same thing here with James. Now, remember I told you last time that Paul and James had interacted some over the years. And we know, obviously, that James was not preaching a false gospel or else Paul wouldn't have been able to put up with him. Remember when Paul got up in the face of Peter? I mean, that had to be kind of strange to everybody that knew Peter. It's like, man, this dude will lay you out. Plus, he's walked on water, man. <laughs> I mean, he also denied the Lord. But hey, you know, we all have our downfalls, right? But Paul saw something that was hypocritical in Peter. And in the book of Acts, we saw that he fronted him on it in front of a bunch of people. He said, hey, man, I'm calling you out. That ain't right. So we know Paul had a tendency to respond that way if he sensed somebody wasn't, you know, on the up and up. And then, of course, again, I think it was Acts 15 when there was a contention in the body of Christ or in the church in those days, body of Christ. Um, everybody got up and spoke. Everybody went up to Jerusalem, all the apostles and Paul and Barnabas. And he got up and spoke. And maybe it was Silas. I can't remember if it was before or after they kind of parted ways but at any rate everybody sort of had their say and when it was all said and done then James stood up and made the final decision because he was the pastor of the church and so it could only be one one head right or if anything with two heads is a freak so it shows us it shows us that um you know some of the wives said yep that's why I'm in charge <laughs> but but it shows us right Guys, just look straight ahead. Nobody will know it's you, right? It's just, I'm running things at my house, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but it shows that they respected James as the pastor. And so that tells us a lot about where he's coming from, which helps us then get in the right understanding to receive what he's going to say. And again, we're going to keep the proper perspective because if we lose that and begin to think that, that it's our works that drive and our performance that drive God's love or motivate God's love for us, then suddenly God's love becomes conditional. And we know that that's not right. So we have to guard our hearts against thinking like that as we go through this because it will challenge you in some ways, I, I would think. So now, um, last time, and I can't remember if I told you this statistic or not, but there's 108 verses in the book of James, 108, 109. Almost 60 of those are him telling us what we need to do. It's 59 times he tells us specifically something to do. And that's why a lot of people come away from studying James as a moralist, uh, a legalist, a Pharisee, if you will, because suddenly they find something that they can do, something they can control. It's an innate thing. They're not necessarily thinking consciously that now I'm performing for God, but that's how it ends up, uh, and it becomes a very frustrating thing. So let me say it this way. God's love and acceptance motivates what we do, not the other way around, right? Uh, and our lives, again, are reflectors of his favor and love and acceptance, uh, and not, you know, not we're trying to earn his love and favor and acceptance, now, in Matthew 5.16, I shared this with you last time too. But I want to review this because I, I think I misspoke a little bit, which I know is hard to believe uh, when I shared it. 
But as I was going back over that, I, I believe that I didn't explain it quite the way I wanted to. So in Matthew 5, 16, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says this, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So again, this is obviously one of those places where we see that what we do is important. Uh, I mean, I would say that, that like James, we at this church are very motivated to go out and do things for people because we know all that God has done for us. So it becomes a, a very motivating, a very, a very powerful thing. And if people looking from the outside might get the wrong opinion, if they didn't know you, if they didn't know me, they'd think, man, you guys just need to chill and relax and rest. But what they don't realize is we're resting in the Father's love. But when you rest in his love, you can't be still. You just have to do something with it. You have to reciprocate in some way, and it's not even something that you have to think about necessarily. It just happens. So here we see that the whole point of this verse is the relationship with the Father is what allows and causes the light to even be able to shine. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father. That means you have a Father. That means you're in a relationship with Him. That means you're the apple of His eye. That means you're His favorite child except for me. And that means that He's the source of the light. Now, this is what I meant to say last time, and I don't think I said it properly, but it would not work if it said this, let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works. That would become a false religion, wouldn't it? That would become this, uh, you know, like you see on the Oscars. Do you know that I read something the other day? Again, a big shock, right? I didn't watch the Oscars. I get... I get sick at those things, you know, watching all that mess. But this di really did amaze me. And I don't know how far back in history they went, but they went pretty far. I know they didn't go all the way back to the beginning, but they went many, many years, decades. And God has only been thanked in an acceptance speech for an Oscar 19 times. And one, one uh, the girl that won, uh, Hudson, that won American Idol, I think she did it like, 15 of those in one, in one sentence, you know. Uh, but, but one person that did it, uh, I forget the movie. It didn't, it didn't strike me when I read the title as an overtly uh, activist-type movie, you know, like a statement-type movie. Just a good movie, won an Oscar. This person wrote it or directed it. I think the person wrote the screenplay. And he go, goes up, and I'm just reading the script. I don't see any pictures or anything. And he began to... Thank his parents, thank his mother, thank uh, God. And then he started saying some things that led me to realize that he was a homosexual. And then he got to the place where he said, for all of, all of you out there, men and women who are homosexual, I want to tell you something. You've been told that God hates you. You've been told by people that, that you, know, you don't matter and things like that. He said, I want you to know tonight, God loves you. And, you know, just saying that just right here in this setting, some of you bristle at that. I know you do. Because there's that little robed Pharisee <laughs> that we're so comfortable with, right? But let me tell you something. That guy is more right on than the church has been. Because God loves people. And I just want to challenge each of us. I, I mean, I, I feel like I'm kind of in touch with this part of my, my past. But just think about where you were before you surrendered. 
Jesus was hounding you. He was chasing you. You didn't decide to turn to him. He chased you till you couldn't run any further. And he apprehended you with his love and his grace came crashing down on you. But think of where you were and how unworthy you were. And now think that they're no different. And, and, and any other kind of lifestyle that people are, are living. I mean, I'm telling you, this is where we have to attack that religious part of us or else the world will never see our light and never celebrate our good works and never turn to Jesus because of us. And I think that's the challenge. So now, let's, uh, after his introduction, he, he brings his identity to bear and now he's going to get into some practicality. His identity tells us where he's come from, what he's all about. He is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and all that. So uh, that being true, now let's read verses 2 through 4. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now think about that. Um, nobody likes trials, right? Anybody in here like a good trial? <laughs> Somebody said, man, I've had three of them and I went to jail every time. I'm <laughs> not wild about trials. <laughs> I, I had a friend that won a trial, but he didn't think he won it good enough. And his lawyer said, listen, man, any win is a win. You better walk away from this thing because next time it could go completely the opposite way. But, but notice that he says a couple of things that provoke me. Count it all joy when you fall into trials, various trials, meaning multiple trials, meaning differing kinds of trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And then we are to rest in this place and allow patience to work out in us, to bring us to a place of maturity. That's what perfection means. That's what being perfect means. And so Jesus said it this way in John 16, These things I have spoken to you so that or that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Notice he said in me you may have peace, meaning I did my part. All you have to do is receive that. It's up to you. Um, in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation the trials are going to come but be of good cheer even in the midst of the tribulation I have overcome the world and so he basically says the same thing that James is saying there and the interesting thing about the trial is that it um, it causes us to realize what's in us you know, the, the scope of the gospel doesn't tell us to go out and be somebody you're not. Right? The gospel says, just get in touch more and more with who you already are in Christ. You know, I thought about a baby, like our grandson. He doesn't get more human as he grows older. He doesn't get more of a male as he gets older. An acorn doesn't get more oaky. Uh, it's already, it's got the DNA of an oak tree in it, right? Or what, I don't know if plants have DNA, but you know, you know what I'm saying. The oak tree's in there. It's not getting more of that as it goes. It just matures into what's already in it. We talked about the, the caterpillar a few weeks ago. It doesn't get more 
of a butterfly. The DNA of the butterfly is in the caterpillar and vice versa. The caterpillar, if you look scientifically, is a butterfly. Just not very pretty. (laughs) Not mature yet. It's like some of us, right? Just not very pretty yet. We just haven't come to fruition yet. But that day is going to come for each one of us. And I think what God does now is he uses the trial to capture our hearts with his grace. Think about the trial. The trial is, and what makes it so much more painful than anything else, is that we're being separated from something that we feel entitled to. Now let me say that again. And, and, I'm, and say, barring things that we have a straight-out, flat-out promise of God on. You know what I mean? Like health and, 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 and that kind of thing. You know, if you're sick in your body, you can proclaim healing. But how many of you know, even then, it's a process sometimes and not an event? We want the event. And sometimes it is. But the process also is in play. Lay hands on the sick, they shall recover. It didn't say lay hands on the sick and they'll be immediately healed. And if they don't, then I didn't do anything. I was aloof and I didn't care about them. That's not what it means. So whenever, though, we're going through a trial, God will use the trial to separate us from things that we have clung to and leaned on in place of him. And I'll give you a for instance. Some of you around in 2010 when we did a merge. And I didn't know that I was so in need of um, affirmation and acceptance from man. But apparently I was. Because walking through that deal, it all went away. People didn't like me. They didn't want to hear me. They didn't want nothing to do with me. And that challenged me because I didn't realize it, but I was dependent on acceptance. I was dependent on, you know, personal affirmation from other people. And uh, I'm telling you, God took me through a, a, a season there. But the beautiful thing, see, what he'll do if we'll allow that process to work, he will divorce you or separate you or cut you away from things that are really killing you. And when I came out of that, you know, I didn't care what anybody thought. There's freedom in that, you know what I mean? You ever see people go to the store in like jammies and stuff? I got to respect that, you know, because it's like that dude don't care, man. I got to go talk to him, you know. I'm not quite there yet, (laughs) but I'm on my way, man. You see me out there with some, you know, little velvet, whatever it's called, hat all sideways, fresh out of the rack. You'll know that I finally got to the place where I no longer cared. (laughs) But isn't that true, though? When we feel like, for instance, when we got turned down for this building, I had the same same kind of thing. I, I felt like I deserved. I deserve a bigger church. There you go, I said it. I told God that. You deserve a bigger church. I'm not talking about bigger numerically. I mean just more comfortable, man, up-to-date kind of thing, you know. And it wasn't like we were trying to build something for $10 million either. 
it irritated me to no end that, the, that we got told no. But what I realized then is I was, I was trying to attach my worth and how other people see me to what my building looked like. You know, had somebody uh, drive by, or I talked to them at a conference one time. Even I did. We, we still laugh about it. And, uh, and they said, the pastor's wife said, oh, yeah, we drive by your little church all the time. We always pray. <laughs> we always pray for you. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to be praying for you too to get well. <laughs> Slap you upside the head. <laughs> but you know <laughs> you know what? And you know the devil's right there. <laughs> I told you, you know. <laughs> and, and, you know, those can become trials. But the good thing is, man, is that it'll identify something in you. And it doesn't mean it's always, even if it is from the devil, you know. I mean, God uses it. Remember Jairus? Jairus, uh, that was a flat-out attack of the enemy. We know that because Jesus healed his daughter. You know, God, you know, we got this picture of the father that he's making people sick so Jesus could come around and heal them. Good cop, bad cop. That's not the truth. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. He showed us the father. So we know that was an attack of the devil. But Jairus then comes, falls at Jesus' feet, says, hey, man, you got to come to my house. Jesus said, okay, let's go. And, um, and what happened was he showed Jairus that he was dependent upon his dead religion that couldn't help him. And that's why when Amanda said that tonight about come unto me, uh, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I love that verse. She didn't know what I was preaching. I didn't know what she was singing, but the Holy Spirit did. But here's the beautiful thing about that. Until you become where you're worn out and heavy laden and burdened, you don't recognize the good news. It doesn't sound as good. See, the Pharisees Jesus dealt with and the religious people, even in our day, they don't see that anything's wrong with them. So the good news isn't that good. It's all about them working their way to God, and they don't get it yet. That's why people will look at you sideways when you start sharing this revelation. You know, I had somebody ask me the other day, well, what about, what about unforgiveness? And we were in a, a, you know, a sitting. There was a few people sitting around. And I said, well, you know, what about it? What do you mean? And you mean, are you not going to go to heaven if you have unforgiveness? Well, yeah, do you not go to heaven if you have unforgiveness in your heart? I said, well, are we talking about somebody that's saved? And she said, yes. And I said, then that person's going to heaven. If you've ever driven on the freeway, you've got unforgiveness in your heart, at least for a little minute, a minute or two. And Jesus said that if you can't forgive, you can't be forgiven. He said that on the Mount, uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. But he was talking to Jews that were religious of under the law. In John, 1 John, he tells us that we love because we are loved. You can't love first and then God love you back. He's always beating you to the punch. He's always there waiting for you to get a hold of it. You know, we're like, oh, yeah, man, I'm excited. Let's, let's get ready to go reach the world for Jesus. Huh? Let's pray that God gets on board with this. And he's like, hello, I'm over here. I've been here for, you know, several millennia. Come on and join me. We just don't get that, see? Anyway, I don't want to digress here, but Paul said this, or he talked about Jesus saying this to him. 
We're talking about how we come to, to face the reality of what's really going on in our life during a time of trials. That's why the trial is a good thing. There's nothing negative about the trial here. I've had people tell me, well, don't pray for patience. Isn't that funny? We've all heard that, haven't we? Hey, welcome to the family of God. Man, Jesus died for you. He loves you completely. Man, go and just enjoy life, but don't pray for patience. Because all hell will break loose. Well, it's, hell's going to break loose anyway, right? 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says, Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in what? Your weakness. So come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Those people that haven't identified with that place of weakness and heavy laden and, and being worn out and burned out and all that, then they're not ready to receive that yet, even though it's available to them. And so then it gets Paul to the place. He says, my, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmity, which doesn't mean sickness, by the way. It means weakness. I would boast in my inabilities, he's saying, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The resurrection power of God is available to us when we'll stop striving and start resting in his ability. And I think that that's a, a powerful, powerful way to look at it. Let me say it this way. Trials are not punishments. Have you ever felt like they were? Well, I'm, this is happening to me because I skipped church. <laughs> you know? How about this one? My clutch burned out because I didn't tithe. How many of you have ever thought that or said that or at least heard somebody say something like that, right? Well, man, my car's in the shop because last month, you know, we didn't tithe and I just know... That's why. It's not why. But that's what we think. So trials are not punishments. Look at it like an intervention. Even if it's perpetrated by the devil, because we'll see in a minute where God's not bringing evil on us. doesn't mean he doesn't test us. You know, I mean, when I went to boot camp, I was tested by drill instructors, not the enemy. They wanted to know I could pass the test. So our Father is going to make sure that we're ready for life, right? He's going to make sure we're ready to face what we're facing. There's no temptation that comes upon us that's not common to all men. And therefore, with the temptation comes a way of escape, the Bible says. So he's going to make sure that we're ready. But he doesn't really have to do anything. The devil will do it all for him. The devil will play right into his plan. And then he'll just use those trials to make us better. So interventions aren't punishments by God. It's just a way that God uses as an intervention to shine the light on something that we're relying on more than him. In Luke 4.18, Jesus, and I'm not going to read all that, but he gets his shot to preach in the synagogue and he gets up and reads out of Isaiah 61 or 2 or 60, I can't remember, but he reads out of Isaiah. And in that, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel. And he goes down through this. But one of the things he says is to set the captives free. And friend, the gospel will set us free. And I think we're going to see that what uh, James is preaching here is exactly that. Uh, it's going to set us free in some major ways. So let's just drop down to verse... Um, you know, we read 5 through 8 
last time. If you want to see that online, it's there. So I'm going to drop down to verse 9, heaven. And we'll start in verse 9 and just head on down to verse 18. And we'll be done right on time. So watch this. It says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Remember, God exalts the humble, right? But the rich in his humiliation. Because he is a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearances perish. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. See, the ethos of the kingdom of God is different than the ethos of the world. The ethos of the world is be rich, be haughty, be somebody important. You know, when other people earn something, run up on stage and tell them they don't deserve it. You know, be that guy. But the ethos of the kingdom is be humble, be aware of God's grace, be somebody that's available for him just to use you in a mighty way. And those are the people that are exalted. And that's what happens. Let me say it this way. Jesus plus nothing is everything. It equals everything. But everything minus Jesus equals nothing. You can have the world, but if you don't have Jesus, you've got a big goose egg. You got nothing. It's nothing. It means nothing. It does nothing. It impacts nothing. Uh, only negative, I, sh I should say. So let me pick it up in verse 12 now. We're almost done with this passage. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. That's why I always say, God can't give you what he's got. Some people think, well, God gave me cancer. No, he didn't. He didn't have any. He, he's not the author of that stuff. Let's get our theology straight. He's on your side. He's not trying to kill you. Uh, he's not trying to teach you a lesson by taking your leg. He's trying to keep your leg on you uh, and help you not be so stupid to lose it. Amen? Um. But each one is tempted. Watch this now, verse 14. Each one is tempted when he or she is drawn away by their own desires and enticed. You ever see the little baby wildebeest get away from the herd? Or, you know, another little animal on National Geographic? That plays right into the hands of the enemy. So when we get our focus all convoluted and think somehow this is about us, remember the gospel's not about you, it's about Jesus. The Old Testament and the New Testament don't tell two different stories. The Old Testament predicts God's messenger. The New Testament presents God's messenger. And the central figure of the gospel is Jesus, not you and not me. It's about what he did for us. The sacrificial life, the sacrificial death. He stood in our place when we couldn't do it. And he was God for us and he rose from the dead. And now you and I live forever because of what he did. And that's the perspective that we must have when we're going through all Scripture. goes on to say, Then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. You know, the interesting thing and one of the myths about the gospel message or the grace message is that grace preachers are easy on sin. They don't really care about sin. Sin's not important. You can live a life of sin. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. God hates sin, and, and it hurts God's heart when we're in sin. Not that we're not going to go to heaven when we die, but we're never going to walk in the fullness of our covenant here on earth. We're bound by the lie and the deception that we need something more than Jesus. See, so it goes all the way back to that trial, and if we're just going to succumb to the world, then, you know, we'll be like the prodigal son in the pig pen of life. When we die, we'll go to heaven because Jesus paid that for us. He stood in our place for that. But we also have a choice to make here. And again, you can go to heaven and destroy every relationship in your life, and that doesn't honor God. It goes on to say, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Verse 18, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creature. I believe that, you know, the Bible says he's the firstborn of many brethren, and we know he's the fulfillment truly of the firstfruits. But I believe we are the a kind of first fruits of the harvest of the earth, particularly where the gospel of grace is concerned, where people can learn to watch your life, to see how you live, and learn how to rest in a loving God without trying to work your way to heaven and just have peace about what Jesus has already done. I've said this before. I think the greatest revelation the church will ever get is what Jesus has already done, not what he's going to do in the book of Revelation. Matter of fact, most of that has already happened, I would think. Um, let me finish with this because you know a lot of people will preach today that um, that trials aren't of God and that anybody that says that trials are going to come upon us as Christians well you know that's just not the gospel well let me tell you something trials are coming your way they're coming to a a living room near you at some time pretty soon I think we're the only generation probably in the history of all mankind or let me say this the only culture in the history of all mankind that has this thought that no trial is ever going to come our way. What, you know what a trial does? It reveals, in some cases, and in many cases I guess I could say, it reveals an idol in our life. It reveals something that we're dependent on, that we're counting on, and suddenly that gets stripped away, and then we're in the midst of the great tribulation. And what God wants to show us and shine his light on is that you don't need anything but me. If we believe the gospel, that in him we live and move and have our being, that in him we are complete, that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, that we are the righteousness of God in Christ, then guess what? Then we don't need anything else. And so when we are in a trial, you know what we can do? just rest we can have radical peace in the midst of tremendous trial because we serve a radical god who came as a man and died for us isn't that exciting so watch this say now to i say all that to set this up with paul the apostle i don't know about you but i would consider him a pretty mighty man of the new testament just like me just like you right well you know that was paul he's in the bible well so are you so are you. You didn't know that? You're in the Bible. Jesus said, those that, that believe in me shall do the works that I did, and greater works than these shall you do. That's better than even Paul got. So you're in there. You're a whosoever. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So in 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18, Paul says this, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction is but for a moment. 
remember this guy, every time, I don't know about you, I've, I've been on a ship once in my life. I've never been on a cruise. How many of you have been on a boat, some kind of big boat like that? How many of you have ever been shipwrecked on that boat? No? I mean, Paul, every time the man got on a boat, it sank. Right? I mean, we read about one, but then he referred to later in his writings, shipwrecks, multiples. And he talked about being lost at sea for days on end, a cut more than once. So he's saying, our light affliction. I find this uncanny, the, the adjectives that he uses here, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at things which are not, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Man, that, that blows me away because, you know, he was, he was the one that said, we are pressed down on every side, but yet not destroyed. And we are, you know, just all the things that he went through. He went through each trial, not because God was trying to teach him a lesson, but because the devil wanted him dead, because there was an antichrist spirit on the earth that we have today that you and I deal with as well. So the whole idea here is that he had a perspective that many of us fail to grasp. But we can grasp it. Because he walked it out just like we do. He just trusted what God had to say. He trusted the promise of the word. He trusted that the patience was going to work out to his benefit, that the trial was actually working out to his advantage. Romans 8 tells us that every trial we go through, that no matter what it is, even if the devil means it for harm, God turns it around for good to those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And that is all of us. We are all loved. That means we love him back. We can love him back. We have that capacity. And we are called according to his purpose. So let me just share with you that as you go through trial, be encouraged that you don't have to waver. It may not be fun. It may even be painful. It may be costly. But I tell you this, if you'll just let the process work. There was something about that time back in 2010 that I had such peace about. Something about this time with the, with the building that I have such peace about that it's beyond my understanding. And again, we all go through things, and, and maybe the things you're going through seem to be greater than those. And, you know, we have differing levels of of suffering at times and all of that. But I'm telling you what, in the midst of all of that, God has not left you. He will not, uh, you know, disengage from your life. He's going to encourage you and walk with you all the days of your life.